We're in the middle of a series called, we're actually at the end of a series called The End of the World as We Know It. Um, so if, if you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, you're a little bit coming in at the end of the movie. And instead of us trying to catch everybody up, what you can do is go to stonebrook.tv and uh, you can hear what we said in the previous two messages and sort of catch you up to date with that. And as we're talking, <clears throat> we've, um, we started this not too long ago, a couple months or so ago, that if you have a question, you can text your question to 415-SB-ROCKS. And um, I'm supposed to take a few minutes at the end of the service and answer those questions. Um, I'm awfully bad to get to talking too much and forget to do that. So what I'm going to do this morning is um, the questions that have come in already, we answered some of them in the first service. We might repeat maybe one of those, but answer some other questions that have have come in and we, we haven't got a chance to get to. I'm going to do it first so I make sure we get it in and then we'll, we'll continue on with what we want to wrap up with today. So um, this first question, is, it comes from the fact that uh, we, we talked last week from Matthew 24 where Jesus talking to his disciples who asked him a question. They asked him, when will, because Jesus said the temple is going to be destroyed and they asked him, when is this going to happen? So Jesus answered his first century audience concerning an event that was going to happen in the first century. And so I said that we need to look at the Bible um, from, from the standpoint of what did the original author intend and what would the original audience have understood. The original audience would not have thought that Jesus was talking about something that was going to happen 2,000 years in the future. They would have thought that he was actually answering their question about, well, when will this temple be destroyed, and that's what Jesus was doing, that when Jesus said, I'm going to come again in the clouds, when Jesus said the armies are going to surround Jerusalem, when that happens, head to the mountains, when Jesus said you'll hear wars, rumors of war, earthquakes in all kinds of different places, um, the different things he said were not talking about something that's happening in our time, but actually something that was fulfilled uh, beginning in 66 AD, but then through 70 AD. So the question is, if we are to consider the audience when reading the Bible, how do we know and decide what is relevant to us? Um, now, first of all, it's all relevant to us after we understand what was intended by, to the first century. Then we mine those truths and apply them to our life in the 21st century. Now, to sort of give you an example that some of you may uh, may be familiar with, and some of you may, may have never heard this, but I'm going to read a passage from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, that was a very popular topic when I was, I grew up in church, and um, how many of you that grew up in church, you ever went to like a youth camp in the summer, which youth camp, or a big youth rally or something like that, let me see your hand, yeah, we got youth camp people, well this seemed to be used a lot when I, I was a teenager, <clears throat> and it goes like this, Revelation, this is Jesus talking. He says, write this letter, and so, so what we're going to do is try to figure out what would the first century audience have heard when Jesus was talking to them. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Angel, by the way, is just a Greek word, messenger. In this case, it's um, many times used of a natural human being. In this case, it would be the pastor of the church at Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. He says, I know all the things you do, that you're neither hot nor cold. 
I wish you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, what they preached at youth camp and a lot of the churches, this was sort of a popular scripture, was that Jesus is saying that you need to be hot for God. You need to be, that sort of sounds weird, uh, you need to be on, I'm hot for God. That's just what I never thought about it that way. You need to be on fire for Jesus. Um, you know this being sort of cold in and out, and they would sort of make you feel guilty. You're not coming to church enough. You're not telling your friends about Jesus enough. You're not raising your hands high enough or jumping up and down high enough on the songs. And they would use someone, in our case, it was a girl named Donna. They would say, and they didn't actually say this, but they sort of implied, you need to be more like Donna. She's very outgoing. She's one that always cries the most during the message, and she would get up and exhort us to leave our lives of sin and not watch uh, certain movies and not listen to certain music and burn all your Beatle records and all these things you're supposed to do in order to be really sold out to Jesus. And the implication was, if you can't do that, then you might as well just be completely cold. It sounded like Jesus was saying, pick one. Stop riding the fence. Stop compromising. Either be in or be out. But don't, you know, be hot on fire for Jesus. But now my trouble was that Donna was annoying. She wasn't helping her friends at school. She was pushing them away from Jesus. She was uh, portraying, misrepresenting actually who Jesus was. And Jesus wasn't about how high we could jump when we worship. It was just that that's how she worshipped God. I preferred to worship very, you know, more quietly. And so it felt to me like I was being condemned and judged because I had a different gift set or I had a different personality. But here, you know, Jesus is saying, pick one, be hot or cold. And, and they would even say, what you're doing is making Jesus sick at his stomach. He's about to throw up because of you. And it's like, and I'm like, I'm about to throw up because of Donna. So either me or Jesus are going to be sick at our stomach. I don't know. I guess I need to change the way I am. But here's the thing. When the first century audience, who was Laodicea, heard this, they didn't think that they were supposed to jump higher during the praise and worship set. They didn't think they were supposed to go out and uh, pass out tracts on the street or something like that. They would have heard something entirely different. Now, this next slide, here's an actual map. It's, uh, I think this is around present-day Turkey. I could be wrong. But, um, yeah, I think it's Laodicea. You see it there. To the north is a little town called Hierapolis. There, to the southeast is a town called Colossae. Laodicea had a problem that Colossae and Hierapolis didn't have in that they didn't have a real good source of water for the various uses that a town needs water for. Hierapolis, to the north, had hot springs. It was a very popular destination, people coming for medicinal purposes. And, of course, there's a lot of things you can use hot water for. It makes, you know, washing your clothes, cooking, different things that hot water is for. So Laodicea, with an aqueduct, piped water from Hierapolis down to Laodicea. Colossae had very cool springs that were supplying them with drinking water. So they piped cool water from Colossae to Laodicea. The trouble is, because of the distance, by the time the hot water arrived at Laodicea, it was lukewarm. By the time the cold water arrived at Laodicea from Colossae, it was lukewarm. Jesus is pointing out, hot water has a purpose. Cold water has a purpose. 
It's not that everybody has to be hot water. There are some people that are cold water. They have a different gifting. They have a different passion. But it's useful for various things. Hot water is useful for various things. But Laodicea knew that no matter how hot it was or how cold it was there, when it got to them, it had become lukewarm. And it just sort of made you sick. And it wasn't useful for anything. Now, he goes on and he's going to tell them some more things. Laodicea actually was a center for banking. A big banking center. Very wealthy area. They also were uh, big in the clothing industry. They had black sheep. They, they uh, harvested this black wool from these sheep. And they um, also was a, a very center for medicine, such as it was in the first century. And they, they had come up with this powder from, that was from Phrygia there. And they were making this eye salve. Many people at that time, first century, there was a, a disease at that time called ophthalmia, which was an eye disease. But they were coming up with this medicine to help with this eye disease. So Jesus is saying to these people, now, also it was a place where people came. They were very wealthy. A lot of people came there to retire. So you have a group of people that think they have everything that they could need. They're doing well off. They've got lots of industry in their area. They've got banking. And they're just sort of looking to relax in life, go to church, have a good time at church, but it's not really affecting their life, and they're not putting it to good use. So he says, you say, I am rich and have everything I want. I don't need a thing. You don't realize that you're wretched and miserable and poor. He calls them poor. Even they, they say, hey, we own the banks. Yeah, but you're poor. We're making ISAB for ophthalmia. Yeah, but you're blind. We're making all these clothes. Yeah, but you're naked. And so to the Laodiceans, it's hitting them. Boom, boom, boom. And he goes on and says, So I advise you to buy gold from me. These are people that were very self-sufficient. They didn't need God interfering with their life. They didn't need Jesus coming along and saying, Yeah, the reason that I put this wealth in the earth is not just so you can relax and have a wonderful time. It's so you can look around and help people that are in need Get outside of yourself and become useful. That has been purified. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me, so you will not be shamed by your nakedness. Ointment for your eyes, so you'll be able to see. Open your eyes. There are people around you who need this message. They become complacent. In fact, the next verse plainly says it. It says, I correct and discipline everyone I love, so be diligent and turn from your indifference. It's not, well, you're... There's Christians that are really excited, but you guys are sort of reserved, and you need to get more on fire. No. There are people that are sort of cold water. That's good. That's useful. Whatever your gift is there, put it to use in my kingdom. If you're hot water, great. Hot water is useful too. Put that to use in my kingdom. Whatever your gift, whatever your place, whatever your calling is, whatever resources you have, they're not for your own consumption to live without me. And see, then... That's a big difference between be like Donna and jump up and down and cry a lot. But if you're not going to be that, in fact, some people in my youth group heard, well, if I can't be like Donna, they're saying I might as well be completely cold. So they went, okay, I picked that one. And they just forgot Jesus because I can't be like that. Well, see, that was a complete misinterpretation, but they didn't understand what the original audience. Now, someone asked this in the first service, and I thought it's a pretty good question. And um, this is something we could talk about Lots, it's not necessarily a subject, but I thought I'd help with this. Is there a Bible guide that refers to Scripture as it was originally intended for the original audience? Sometimes reading the Bible seems like trying to solve a riddle. 
How many would just be honest and say, when I read the Bible, it sort of seems like solving a riddle? <laughs> yeah, me too. I understand. Um, for those of us without the knowledge of the background. Okay, let me give you just a, two or three things and we'll move on. But one, it's something that I really want people to fall in love, not only with the Bible, but the reason the Bible, the center of the Bible. First of all, you don't have to know all the background and all the history behind it to benefit from the Bible and to get started. But here's something that's very important. And we did a sort of a little series on this about a year or so ago. Um, all of the Bible is equally inspired, but it's not all equally applicable. There are certain things, especially in the Old Covenant, that wouldn't necessarily apply to us particularly. But the place to start, the place to begin and end, is with Jesus. He's the beginning, the author, and the end, the finisher, of our faith. If we're wanting to gain uh, wisdom and gain uh, knowledge of who God is, increase our faith, we begin and end with Jesus. The way to understand God is through Jesus. He's the visible representation of the invisible God. Hebrews says he's the exact representation of his person. God looks like Jesus. That's how we find out. So start in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Without knowing any background, just read it. You may not understand everything, but gaining just a general knowledge of who Jesus is will help you more when you begin to look into some of the background things. Having just an understanding, having read it, then when you read some of these background helps and these other tools, it will, it will uh, remind you of it. Plus, we as Christians believe that as we follow Jesus, that his Holy Spirit actually lives in us, and his Spirit will actually begin to help you understand things as you just simply do the hard work, if you will, the discipline of just reading it. I would suggest, by the way, not because it's my name, but that you start in the book of Mark. When we get to heaven, don't, I mean, don't tell Matthew until we get to heaven or the eternity that I said this, but Matthew's my least favorite of the four Gospels. He gets a little preachy, a little wordy. I'm like, come on, Matthew, throw in some car chases or something. We've got to have a fight scene or something here. This is boring me here. But Mark moves really fast. There's a lot of action. And you, it's really short, 16 chapters. Um, and it just go, gives you a lot of information about Jesus. Now, you can write these down or listen online to hear these later. Here's just a couple of tools, study tools that might help you with some of the background knowledge. There's a little book called Haley's Bible Handbook. It's a classic. It's written years and years ago. It's a little small thing that will help you with some of the customs and um, you know the of the first century, how the the mindset of the Jews, the way that Jesus would have meant something, and the way that they would have seen it. Haley's Bible Handbook. And then there's a book that I've um, I haven't even gotten through the entire book, but I really like it. It's called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. The, one of the, there, there are several issues with understanding God through the Bible. Number one, it's an ancient book written, the four Gospels anyway, written in the first century. We're in the 21st century. It was written to an Eastern mindset, and we are a Western mindset. It was written in another language, and of course we have uh, translations of that. But uh, misreading Scripture with Western eyes and removing cultural blinders to better understand the Bible... It's by a guy named Randolph Richards and Brandon O'Brien. But there's just a couple resources, if you'd like, that will sort, sort of help you. Uh, go on past that next question, Brian. 
Here's one. I get this all the time. It doesn't necessarily have a lot to do with what we were talking about. But I get this all the time. question is, what does the Bible say about tattoos? And it sort of does, and I will show you how. Is it wrong for a Christian to get a tattoo? Okay, everybody, you're listening? Yes, you're all going to hell. It's just the way it is. No, it's not wrong. Um, here is, once again, it's a misunderstanding because the Bible says not to make, oh, it's in the Old Testament, probably Leviticus, not to make markings on your body, things like that. So people say, see, it's wrong to have a tattoo. But the Bible is not, is a story. It's not a manual on how to change a car battery. First, unhook the leads to the battery. Okay, do that. What's next? It's not a, a manual that's telling you, step one, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. It's a story. And in the Old Testament, God, in order, because God, God had a certain intent with the original creation through Adam and Eve, things were going great for about three chapters. Then all heck breaks loose. And the rest of the Bible is God's interactions with human beings to restore what he originally wanted, which was a relationship with us. He just wanted, like the Garden of Eden, to come down, walk through the woods with us, sit around, talk face to face. He didn't want to be all this religiosity, all these rituals, temples, and sacrifices. It was never his intent, never his idea. But he used certain things to have a group of people, the, the Jewish people originally, that he could bring his Messiah through these Jewish people. And one of the problems that the Jewish people had when God first began to interact with them is they were constantly being drawn into idol worship to worship other pagan gods of the surrounding nations. Some of the surrounding nations had very interesting worship practices, uh, including prostitution, homosexuality, all kinds of things that, that were going on. And one of the things that some of these neighboring nations did was, as part of their worship, they would make markings, cut markings into their bodies as a worship and a devotion to their God. Now, I don't know, did my son leave? He probably left because he knew I would try to leave him, use him for an example, again, this second service. For example, my son just got his first tattoo. Yay. <laughs> That's how to get this crowd excited. Forget this Jesus stuff. He got a tattoo. Yes. Yes. But I think it's pretty cool. I, you know, I don't have any tattoos. And if his grandmother was still alive, she would beat him with a ball bat. That's all I have to say about that. But he got on his bicep right here, which mine needs a little development, all you that are... Where's Shannon Warner? Don't look. Don't look at my bicep. Um, but um, he, he right here on his bicep had the word tetelestai written on his bicep. Does anybody know what the word tetelestai is? Yes, it's a word. It's the Greek translation. See, this is how weird my family is. It's the Greek translation of the last word spoken by Jesus on the cross. When he bowed his head, the, the English translation is, it is finished. It's the very last word he said. It's actually, some, most, some people say that it's, in Greek, it was used in the marketplaces that they would market on the bills that they would give to people. Tetelestai, it means paid in full. That when Jesus finally gave up his life on the cross, he's saying, just like we've been saying these past few weeks with what, what Jesus was doing with the destruction of the temple, that this religious system where there's a temple, we have to go do sacrifices, do holy men with holy scriptures. It is finished. It's paid in full. And so he put that on his arm. Well, he's not trying to worship a foreign god. 
He's trying to be an example and to have a, have a, uh, a discussion starter. I think he's maybe trying to pick up chicks as well. I'm not really sure. But, uh, he's, you know, he has to explain what it means so it's, hopefully it's the right kind of chick. You know, maybe that's his weeding out process. It's the last words Jesus spoke. If they go, see ya, he says, well, I don't want to date her or whatever. I don't know. But he's not trying to worship foreign gods. So his intent is to do something uh, that is not what God was saying in the Old Testament. So, but here's the thing. If you're wanting to get a tattoo to worship a foreign god, you probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> but if you just like tattoos, you want, you know, you know, some of you say, well, I would like a Hawaiian girl in grass skirt. I would prefer she be fully clothed. But that's between you and God. It's nothing necessarily in the Bible. In, in, see, we start and end with Jesus. There's nothing uh, as followers of Jesus that would say you can't have a tattoo. So once again, I was sort of explaining also how to interpret the Bible. Okay, we're done with that. Let's move on with what we want to talk about this week. The question is, because Jesus, we found out what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24, when he says, I'm going to return in the clouds, and that some are going to be taken and some are left behind. Go listen to last week and you'll see that. He was talking about the destruction of the temple when Titus came in with the Roman army and, and leveled Jerusalem and Jesus' predictions were fulfilled there in 70 A.D. The question is, is Jesus going to return to the earth? What does that look like? Where, do, where are we going to spend eternity? Are we going to heaven? Or is Jesus coming here and taking us? Is there going, are we going to go up in the clouds like some people say? So um, I, I'm going to have you skip Second Peter again there, Brian. Just take me directly to First Thessalonians. This is the main scripture passage that people that would say that there's going to be this secret catching away of Christians to heaven and then very bad things are going to happen on the earth and then we're going to return later with him. They use this scripture right here. Now, just once again, a little historical background. First of all, before the year 1830, the doctrine or the notion of the fact that Jesus was somehow going to return and snatch people away into the air and take them to heaven wasn't believed by anybody. Nobody believed that. Nobody preached that. It was unheard of until 1830. Now, just because something wasn't heard of doesn't necessarily mean that it's an incorrect doctrine. But if you're introducing something new, you better have some pretty good foundation in Scripture and especially through Jesus of what you're saying. This doctrine, uh, most people believe, originated with a girl... A 15-year-old girl, her name was Margaret MacDonald, 1830. She was from Scotland. And um, they, they were having different revival-type meetings, tent meetings, you know, evangelistic-type services. And she had been sick for three or four days. And she actually was running a very high fever. And at the end of that time, she believed she had a vision. And in this vision, she saw that Jesus returning to earth was actually going to be a two-staged process that Jesus was going to return, take away the Christians, sort of deliver us from the judgment and the tribulation and persecution that was going to happen on the earth because of the Antichrist, Mark of the Beast, whatever. And he was going to take us to heaven, and then bad things were going to happen down here. It's a two-stage process. Now, it probably would have just died there because the farm girl in Scotland, you know, that's not going to affect many people. But a guy named John John Nelson Darby, was actually a pretty smart guy, pretty uh, minister, he picked that up and he began to preach that in a lot of his services. 
Once again, it would probably have died there, but a man named C.I. Schofield, he uh, picked that up and began to preach it, and he put together a, a reference Bible. Now, those of you that grew up, maybe you grew up Baptist or Pentecostal, you may have heard of the Schofield Reference Bible. In that particular Bible, there were all these notes concerning this doctrine of the rapture. So that's where it originated. I'm, I'm just saying that to, for you to know that it's not something that was taught by the early church or anybody up till this particular time in 1830. Now, here's Jesus. I mean, here's Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing to this church in a town called Thessalonica. By the way, most of the letters in the New Testament are written to a church to correct some things that they are thinking that weren't right. Now, Paul would go into an area, and he would, he would start a church, but he didn't stay there very long, and he would move on to something else. But he had told the church at Thessalonica, now Jesus is going to return. And they expected it to happen very soon. We don't know if Paul expected it to happen, you know, real, real soon. But the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians uh, believed that Jesus was going to come back. But all of a sudden they started thinking, well, wait, 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 wait. Uncle Bob died last year and Jesus hasn't returned. What happens to Uncle Bob? Does Uncle Bob get to be in this new kingdom when Jesus returns? He died. Where is he? What's going to happen there? Because if Jesus returns today, I want Uncle Bob to be there and he's dead. So Paul is calling, uh, calling. It would be nice back. I bet Paul wished he could have called. Let me just text this real quick, Barnabas, and we'll get on to some other church. But he had to write a letter. Okay, and now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died. Now, in other translations, and then he goes on to say, so you will not grieve like those that have no hope. Here's the NIV translation. It says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be informed about those who sleep in death. Now here, we'll just stop and talk about this for a minute. People wonder, what is the, the, the state of people who have, who have already died? Christians, Jesus people who have died, are they conscious somewhere? Are they in a place or are they simply sleeping? Because Paul here says, those that sleep in death. Jesus even said, you remember that when Lazarus had died, Jesus told his disciples, we need to go and wake him up. And Bar uh, um, doubting Thomas, Thomas was like, well, if he's asleep, let's leave him alone. And Jesus finally had to say, okay, he's not really asleep, he's dead. I was, I was trying to teach you something, Barnabas. And Barnabas was, oh, I get it now. But... I don't believe that either Paul or Jesus are talking about the consciousness of the person. Because how many of you here have ever had an operation where they put you under? Put you under? And you remember that thing where they tell you to count 10, 9, 8, 7. And all of a sudden it just goes, and it's black. In my case, I don't know what your experience was. I've talked to others the same thing. It seemed like it just went, and then boom, boom, and I was back awake. There's no passing of time in my mind. I know the first surgery, it went, and I woke up and was going, I was throwing up. So it was very exciting for everybody in the room. But, you know, so some people think that, well, people that die, it'll be just like you went to sleep, and then Jesus returns, and you wake up, and, whoa, it's a party. Where did all these people come from? But uh, number one, and this has no scriptural bearing, has no scriptural basis at all. I just don't like that. I don't know how much you've thought about what happens when you die, but the thing that bothers me more than anything is if I'm dead and I'm unaware 
that other things are going on, don't you hate? That just bothers me. I don't want people to be doing stuff up here on the earth and I'm just down there dead asleep. I want to be, I want to know what's happening. You know, I want to be, I want to be somewhere doing something. Now, just because I want that doesn't mean that that's what's happening. But Paul here, I believe, is talking about the temporariness of death, not necessarily the conscious state of those who have died. It's just like when you lay down at night and your eyes close. It's not permanent. You wake up again in the morning. And uh, I think we see that in the next verse because Paul says, For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again. And I'll just interject here that Paul in another place, the Apostle Paul, says that when we're absent from the body in death, that we are present with the Lord, that we're actually somewhere with him. We can talk about that more another time. But he uses his basis for everything he's about to say. This is what I, this is, uh, once again, I'm trying to show you the way that we understand the Bible. He starts and ends with Jesus. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him. So those people that have died are with him somewhere, the believers who have died. Now here's a, a cool thing, that Paul is basing what he's about to talk about our future, what's going to happen to us eternally. He's basing it on Jesus dying and raising from the dead. Now the cool thing about that is that it seems that uh, different writers in the New Testament will use Jesus as sort of a prototype. Another place says that Jesus, when he rose from the dead, he was the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. In other words, he's the prototype. He rose from the dead, but he's not the only one. Because he did that and still lives, he paved the way so all of us that follow him will also someday raise from the dead and our bodies will be very similar. Or actually, the Bible says in John, 1 John, when we see him, we'll be like he is. Well, the cool thing about Jesus, after he rose from the dead, he wasn't just a spirit. See, many of us, when we think of after death or eternity, we think of floating on a cloud, sort of, you know, white robes, and we sort of, it's sort of uh, wispy. You know what I mean? It's foggy. But Jesus said, because when Jesus appeared to his disciples, they said, oh, it's a ghost. It's a ghost. It's like Shaggy and Scooby. Ah, it's a ghost. But he said, no, I'm not a ghost. Feel me. He said, a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones. And then to further prove his point, he said, do you have something to eat? This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, to know that for eternity, we get to eat. And they had some broiled fish, and right in front of them, he ate that broiled fish. Later, he actually cooked some fish for him. A few days later, it's like, Jesus made his breakfast. This is amazing. But he had a flesh and bone body, except it just wouldn't die anymore. And it had some cool features. This is, you know, it's like going, it's going, it's, it's, it's like from owning a Prius, no offense to you Prius, Prius people, to the new Dodge, what is that new, is it a Charger? Dodge has a new Charger Hellcat or something it's called, you know, Chal Challenger Hellcat, it, oh, sorry, I offended all the Mopar people, Challenger, uh, I'll, I'll just get the Chevy people involved, it's like getting a Corvette after you've owned a Prius. Jesus' body, it, it, it could be in one place and he would just disappear and appear in another place. He would come into a room, but the door was locked. He just came through the wall. And I just think that's going to be cool to play with, like for the first 10,000 years. And maybe like, I'm going to disappear here 
And I'm going to be at Saturn for the next like 25,000 years, so I'll be back soon. It's not just 25,000 years. When you have eternity, why does it matter? But Jesus is the prototype, his body, the way he was. Uh, because of that, Paul says, we believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring him back, the believers who have died. Verse 15, we tell you this directly from the Lord, that we who are still living when the Lord returns. Now, in order to understand the nature of how Paul is telling this first century audience how Jesus is going to return, this, this word returns here, Jesus return, is, is the Greek word parousia. It's, it's not just show up. It's a word that was used when a, a, a royalty, maybe the king of the area, or a returning hero from battle, the general of an army that had just won a victorious battle, is coming back to the town. Now, when a king comes... You don't want to just, you know, be sitting around knowing that the king is returning and the king walk up to the gate of the city. Hello, is anybody here? I'm home. I'm here. No, you know the king is returning. So you go out and this is what Paul says. When the Lord returns, we will not meet him ahead of those who have died. We're, we're going to go out. This word meet is, is more than just good to meet you. Good to see you. Glad to meet you. No, it's, it's a picture. It forms this picture to his first century audience of the people in the town that the royalty that the king is coming to would go out of the city, very much like when Jesus entered, to Jeru entered, entered into Jerusalem right before um, he died. Uh, we call it Palm Sunday. He entered, he had people that were with him that were having a big party, shouting, waving palm branches, here comes the king. And then people inside the city went out to meet him. There was a big party coming down the road into the town. Now, it goes on, verse 16. There's a lot of things we can say about this, but just don't have time. Uh, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump, trumpet call of God. <sighs> I just don't have time to talk about what that is. Um, okay, I thought my, my, clock is, my clock is stopping every now and then. How much time do you say I have, Brian? Six and a half minutes. Isn't it good to know that, whew, church is going to be over in six and a half minutes? Okay. I mean, I, I'd stay here all day. I'm just trying to help you out. But notice, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout. This is actually sort of a picture of how Moses came down, but we won't talk about that. But first, the Christians who have died will rise from their graves. First. Then together with them, see, God's intention has always been to live here on earth with us. First few chapters of the Bible didn't work out too good, but the whole rest of the Bible is restoring that. And if you want to do some study on your own, go to the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation. Read that today. And you'll see this picture of God actually bringing, because we talk about in heaven there are streets of gold, we're going to live there forever. Actually, Revelation 21 says God brings that city down to earth and lives for eternity here that the earth will be regenerated, that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and that we will live together under the rule of Jesus here forever. Then together, we, then together with them, we who are alive and remain on the earth will be caught up. Now this word caught up is where we get the word rapture. It's a Greek word, harpizo. And when the, the Greek was first translated into the Latin, the Latin chose the word raptus. That's where we get the word rapture. I often wondered, well, maybe we got it wrong and they meant raptor and they were, the earth was going to be overrun by dinosaurs. I don't know. 
No, that's probably not it. But this word raptus, it means caught up. Now notice this. Caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord. So this is a picture of Jesus is returning with all the Christians who have died. And we go out to meet him. Welcoming back our conquering hero, our king, who's going to set up a new kingdom. The question at that point is, who makes the U-turn? The people that believe in a rapture would say, well, Jesus makes the U-turn and we go back to heaven. But actually, there's no indication of that in Scripture. The indication is that we bring him back to earth. Now notice this, to meet the Lord in the air. Now it would seem then to indicate, well, yeah, see, we go up in the sky. But actually, once again, there's a picture of this in the original Greek. Satan, for example, is called in another place, some of you may know this, the prince of the power of the what? Of the air. Are they talking about he's in charge of the oxygen-nitrogen combination that we breathe? No. That word air is a word that indicates a, a, a realm of authority, a kingdom. That there's, the, there's a world system that's going on that Satan, he's the prince over it. Uh, it's sort of Paul's way of the, that said that, the prince of the power of the air. It's, it's his way of sort of poking fun at, at Satan. That, yeah, you're the prince, but the king is coming. You're just a prince. And this is what it's saying, that we'll be caught up. We'll be involved, and we meet the Lord in the air. He's coming back to set up his realm of authority. He's coming, up to set up, coming back to set up his kingdom. And Jesus, while he was on the earth, said, if you'll be faithful in what I tell you to do now, then when I return, you'll be ruler over much. You'll be involved in me ruling this earth. You'll be involved in the authority that I set up on the earth, a very peaceful, loving, self-sacrificial kingdom. It's not a matter of, oh, good, I get to be in charge. I'm going to tell some people off. Well, you're not going to get to be in charge then because <laughs> that's very, very un-Jesus. But those of us will be caught up in this new kingdom that he comes to establish and will rule with him. But the bottom, and this is, this is the bottom line, then we will be with the Lord forever. Now, if I'm entirely wrong and Jesus returns and we're all snatched up and our clothes are left behind here and airplanes crashes and all this happens, okay. <laughs> but the trouble with that is, is it develops this escapist mentality in so many Christians where they stop caring about the life that we're living now. They stop looking around at the people that have needs that could be served in practical ways. They stop looking around at people that just need need a friend to talk to, that, that need a helping hand, because why does it matter? Things are getting bad. I don't care that they're getting bad. Jesus is going to snatch us away, and, and we're going to get out of this place. Too bad for these poor schmoes that are left behind. No, we are to be about the business that Jesus did while he was on the earth in reaching those outcasts, reaching those that, that uh, other people are just writing off as incorrigible and they can't be helped. Those are the people that we're supposed to be, and, and even just the, that person on your job, that person in your own house that uh, you're supposed to be serving and showing love of Jesus to, that's what we're supposed to do. Every hour that we're trying to figure out the details and looking for Jesus to return and get us out of this mess is another hour that we're not living out the life that Jesus told us to do. Um, and then Paul ends that particular part there in Thessalonians. This is the bottom line. He says, just encourage one another with these words. It's about uh, encouraging and loving one another. Bottom line. So we have just 
like a minute or so. And, you know, this is second service, so I could actually go as long as I want, you know. But, no, you can leave if you need to, really. That's the, that's the thing also about our church. Anytime you need to leave, you know, just, you know, don't flip us off on your way out or anything, but you can get up and leave at any time. When I said, you're going to hell in the first service, if you have a tattoo, of course, I was just joking. Dave Gridley, who plays the guitar, he got up and left. No, but he came back. Um, here's a question, though, that came in. If our bodies are resurrected like Christ, what about those that have been cremated? Um, there's nothing in the Bible that says one way or the other about being cremated. I pretty much have decided that this is the way to go, actually. Um, you know, don't buy me if don't spend $2,000 on a box to put me in. Because when I'm done with this body, whatever Jesus has to do, I don't think Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit are up there in heaven going, huh, Jesus, did you see this one coming? They're burning themselves. I know you have that program for making the stars and the planets and the galaxies and all, but this is a tough one. I don't think we can bring that body back. It's been cremated. You know what I'm saying? It's all the molecules are there. We can understand various laws of matter that matter cannot be destroyed. It can only change forms. Therefore, all the atoms that are originally there are still there. Uh, you know, if someone perhaps has been in a case where maybe there was, they were blown up. Oh, there are people that have been lost at sea. Here, here, maybe this is the best way to give an answer. Wow, I have actual scripture. It's amazing. Um, read Revelation 20, 21. It says at the last day when everyone is resurrected and those that aren't Jesus followers will actually stand judgment before God. It says that the sea gave up the dead. Well, if you've been dead at sea for like 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, a couple hundred years ago, no offense to anyone that you may know that have died at sea, but several things have eaten you and they've gone all kinds of different directions. They've eaten you and pooped you out the other end. Do you know what I'm saying? This is probably much worse than cremation, so I think God will have an all right time with that. So, um, My clock stopped again. Am I done, Brian? Is there one more question? I'm over a minute and a half? You can ask for a refund when you leave. I've gone too long. Um, okay. Just one, one quick thing. Next week, the next two weeks actually, there's two more weeks before school starts back up again. When school starts back up again, uh, Stonebrook gets a little more crazy, a little more busy. And, um, but there's, there's a couple things. There's things I need to talk about the next two weeks that are very, very, very important. If you call Stonebrook your home, just do your best to make sure and be here uh, next Sunday, the 9th, and then the Sunday after that, the 16th. Let me pray for us, and we'll be dismissed. Father, I thank you for this group of people that allows me to go over almost every Sunday. Um, I thank you for their heart to know you. Sir, we, there's so many things we don't know about you because you're just amazing. You're so multifaceted. We don't pretend to know everything about you or to, to believe everything we even say is absolutely right. But we want to know you more. We, we're searching and, and seeking to, to be more like you. Help us to do that. Help us this week to demonstrate who you are to those around us that they can live forever with you and with us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.